the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. What a glorious morning it is here in Cleveland, Ohio, and in the United States of America. Great morning to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Ten minutes after the hour of nine o'clock, and we're rolling. On this Monday, the third morning of the seventh month of the year of our Lord, 2023. I love months that are not groomer months. This is one of them. How about that? There are 11 of them. That's a good ratio, 11 to 1, but uh, boy, oh boy, I wish we could get 12 to nothing. Uh, But it's a great time. Uh, We are, of course, in the midst of, if you are doing the long thing, you know, the four-day weekend thing, the four-day Independence Day weekend thing, because it falls tomorrow, good for you. Enjoy it today. Make sure you take some time for yourself, for your family. Uh, get away from the screens if you can for a little while, the phone screen, the computer screen, and really enjoy everything that America has to offer. Uh, that's what my wish is for you. Uh, so we are in day three. If you're doing that four-day weekend thing, we have in day three. We are off tomorrow from a live uh, standpoint. We do have a great program for you, including some uh, 
a few special things uh, to commemorate the birth of the greatest nation in the history of human civilization. And that's what uh, tomorrow will be celebrated with. We'll have some best of uh, segments for you, but uh, we'll have a few uh, special patriotic things as well. So uh, we'll be off for that one. Uh, but today we are live, and we are going to be loud, live and loud. Coming up in a half an hour, uh, Jim Jordan will join us, the uh, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee and the Weaponization Subcommittee. Uh, in the judiciary. So that'll be Jim Jordan at 935. Taya Shoemake is going to be joining me uh, at 1010 this morning. She is a homeschool advocate. And the more and more we learn about what is going on in our schools, the more and more people are saying, what does it take to be a homeschooler? What does it take? And, you know, how can I make it happen? Um, that's a tough question. While Taya kind of is is putting together a business, if you will, um, that answers that question, how to make the switch to homeschool. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'll talk to Tay about this when I have her on at 1010. My son, who's 19, he'll be 20 in about uh, two weeks. I can't remember which one it was now. It was, uh, it was Saturday. He was asking me about some story or another that was in the news uh, about education. And, um, and he said to, and I gave him the answer, and he said, am I going to have to homeschool my kids? My son went to a Catholic school. Uh, we all went to graduate from Elyria Catholic High School proudly. And Elyria Catholic High School, by the way, is a Catholic school that is not woke, unlike some of the largest Catholic high schools in Greater Cleveland. And I'm talking about the two largest all-boys schools and the two largest all-girls schools uh, in Greater Cleveland. Yeah, they're woke as you can imagine, and not all of them are. If you think the answer to escaping left-wing indoctrination uh, of your kids and DEI crap being forced into their brains uh, is to get them out of public schools and put them into your, your nearest Catholic school, think twice. It's a lot harder than that. Many of them are not, um, maybe many of them are not the answer you're looking for. Uh, so homeschooling might be that answer. My son literally thinking forward thinking and, uh, and said, you know, am I going to eventually have to do that? And I said, you know what? I, I can't say for sure, but you better be ready. And you know what I actually said to him? I said, well, you might not have to, but I'll do it for you. I actually was a teacher for the first six, seven years of my professional career, and uh, I would be more than happy to start educating kids, you know, especially if they're my grandkids in the home, uh, if that's what it takes uh, to keep these kids safe from the, uh, from the ridiculousness that faces so many, so many other kids' face, I should say, in their public schools. So Taya Shoemaker will talk about that with us at 1010. Then Kenny Shu returns to us from Color Us United. Kenny Shu uh, will react to the affirmative action of all of the decisions that were made by the Supreme Court and announced at the end of last week, uh, the affirmative action one is probably still raising the most uh, ire among the Marxist leftist Democrats in this country today. Uh, they don't like the idea of a colorblind society. They don't like the idea of people having to make it on their own merit. They don't like the idea of some people being discriminated against racially in favor of others. They don't like that at all. They are so pro racial discrimination and it's just hilarious to watch because they are the ones who continue to call america racist they are the ones who continue to condemn racism systemically in the united states and yet they support systemic racism as long as the people being discriminated against based upon their race don't look like them (laughs) isn't that an amazing thing uh many of those who are being discriminated against look like kenny shu kenny shu is asian and Asian Americans are the ones who had been suffering the most uh, under the affirmative action programs of Harvard and North Carolina and many other schools in this country, which now will not be able to do that. So 
Uh, Jim Jordan, Tayshu Shoemake, Kenny Shu will be our guest today. I told you we're going to be loud and we're going to be loaded and we are going to be ready for your calls too at 216-901-0945-888-281-1110. We said we start the day, it seems appropriate, with our Pledge of Allegiance in this Independence Day four-day weekend kind of a thing we've got going on. By the way, do we push that next year when it's on Wednesday? Do we push it to a five-day weekend or we just have to kind of start in the middle of the week and we just get our one day? Yeah, probably. Anyway, let's do this together. Patriots, stand, face your flag, put your hand on your heart, and join us for this pledge. If you are a believer in any of the filth that I just described that's going on in America's schools, for example, well, that means you don't believe in teaching uh, real American history to our kids or learning it yourself. So, therefore, you are exempt from the request to pledge allegiance to our flag. Instead, if you're more comfortable, go ahead and take a knee next to that socialist, Marxist, unemployed quarterback. As for the rest of us, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Yeah, so um, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, let's talk about pride in America. Let's talk about uh, the willingness to pledge your allegiance to it. Um, I became aware over the weekend of a Gallup poll that just kind of struck me. Um, it's a poll that shows an historically low number of U.S. adults that describe themselves as extremely proud to be Americans. The Gallup survey showed that 39% of adults expressed extreme pride in the United States of America, which is only one percentage point lower than last year, which is the record low number of 38%. The number was four points higher in 2021. It was 16 points higher than that when Gallup first asked the question in 2001. It grew as high as 65 to 70% in the years following the 9-11 attacks. Nothing seems to bring people together in support of their country quite like an attack on the country. I would submit to you that there is still an attack going on against our country. It's just that it's not from a foreign power flying planes into buildings. It's from within. There is an attack on the family. There is an attack on the building blocks, the foundation, if you will, of this entire civilization. There is an attack on our children, because they literally are the building blocks. They, along with parents, two parents, growing up with two parents in their home, uh, a mother and a father being, you know, being, being raised with all of the right values and principles, that's the nuclear family that literally lays the foundation for Western civilization, and it's under severe attack. And I find it very, very interesting about how well it's working, considering these numbers. A near record low number of adults do not express, or I'm sorry, uh, express a record low number of, of adults express extreme pride in the United States. How does it break down by age? Let's look at it. 50% of U.S. adults aged 55 or older say they're extremely proud of, to be American. Now, quite frankly, I think that number is very, very sad. That's only half. That means half of U.S. adults say they're not extremely proud to be American. Maybe that's a, a reflection of the moment because of some of the things that are going on in the country right now. 
some of the attacks, as I say, that we're facing from within. Maybe that's why. But nonetheless, that's the high point. The high water mark is 50% for ages ages 55 and older. In the next category, 35 to 54, which is an extremely important demographic, by the way, it drops now to 40%. So 4 in 10 Americans aged 35 to 54 are extremely proud to be Americans, extremely proud of the United States. So that means 6 in 10 do not express extreme pride. And then finally, we get to the 18 to 34-year-old category. And it drops all the way down to 18%. Even if I round that up to 20%, that's 1 in 5 or 2 in 10 say that they are extremely proud of America and to be Americans, which, of course, means that roughly 80% of kids, or I'm sorry, these are adults, 18 to 34, uh, but it's the youngest generation surveyed here, say they are extremely proud to be Americans. And I was pondering that as I heard that story this more or this uh, or this past weekend, and I was kind of wondering why does it drop off so precipitously from fifty percent to forty percent down to eighteen percent? And it kind of occurred to me the reason why is because of what I was just talking about moments ago about the homeschooling segment we're going to do, and the reason why is because that generation was among the first generations um, to be to be beat over the head with things like Marxist theory in the public schools, critical race theory, to be precise. They've been taught at an increasing volume over the course of the last decade to two decades. You know, these people who, you know, 20 years ago, they were eight. You know, this is 18 to 34, so they were, uh, you know, eight to 24, so, or I'm sorry, 14, beg your pardon. This was among the first generation to be taught that America is evil. To be taught that America is irredeemably racist. Irredeemably is the key word there. Much more than even racism. Irredeemably means that we can never get redemption for the sins of the past. We can never right the ship. We can never make things better. We're irredeemably racist. That's what CRT teaches. That's what the 1619 Project, which is a work of historical fiction, teaches. That stuff has been pumped into the brains of that youngest generation, and of course Generation Z, and that's the youngest generation of adults. That's why they were surveyed as way. This is just a survey of adults, so 18 to 34. But the Gen Zers, who are under the age of 18, obviously are getting all of what I just described on steroids between... uh, Marxist theory when it comes to race, Marxist theory when it comes to sex or sexual orientation, all you, you know what Marxist theory does. It divides. It divides classes of people, or rather groups of people, into classes of oppressed and oppressor. Whether it be along racial lines, whether it be along sexual lines, gender lines, whatever the case might be. Class lines, that's a huge, huge one as well. All of this has been used to try to break apart the family and break apart the United States as, as the, the power that it is. So these younger generations who are being told that America is irredeemably racist, it is irredeemably oppressive against people in marginalized groups, that's why you have this, uh, this lack of pride in the United States. And I, 
And I look at anecdotal situations like this one, you know, as we just got the uh, Supreme Court decisions last week that say the United States cannot be at the higher education levels. They cannot be racist anymore in their decision making when it comes to um, who, who gets into school and who does not. They can't discriminate based on race. The second one being they cannot force people to say things they don't want to say, whether they be, whether it be through the spoken word or through creations of artistic natures or websites or cakes or anything else. They can't be forced to say things they don't want to say. The left hates that. They want people to be forced to say what the government tells them they have to say. And then, of course, the other one being the clearly and the, the easiest call for the justices the unconstitutionality of forgiving student loans, telling just some people they don't have to pay back the money that they borrowed from banks in order to get educations. Uh, those things are obvious, but when those when those uh, decisions came down, it led to a lot of the America haters. <clears throat> it led to them just uh, you know pulling the curtain back on their hatred, and they just let it fly. A WNBA player you've never heard of, because neither had I, named Natasha Cloud, wants to be heard now. As soon as she heard those cases, she jumped in. She's in the 18 to 34 crowd that isn't proud of being America. She jumped in and went on to Twitter and declared, our country is trash in so many ways. And instead of using our resources to make it better, we continue to oppress marginalized groups that we have targeted since the beginning of times. And black and brown communities and LGBTQ plus man, we are too powerful to still be attacking issues separate. Now I'm just going to forget about all of the ridiculous uh, grammar mistakes and, and focus on the point. This is what they do. If they aren't being catered to, they being the radical leftists and Marxists, some of whom might not even realize they're Marxists based on their extreme views, But if those radical leftists and Marxists don't get everything that they want handed to them on a silver platter, if they don't get preferential treatment, if they don't get special treatment, if they don't get privilege, which is what they decry in other circumstances for others, if they don't get special privileges, the country is trash. And they don't respect it. Which, of course, considering that this particular person is a WNBA player on apparently the WNBA champions. It's all the story says. I have no idea what team because nobody knows that stuff Um, because no one watches that stuff. But it it just struck me. It's like, you know, for somebody to say that the United States is trash and she's in the WNBA, I wonder if maybe she might benefit from a sit-down conversation with Brittany Griner, who is another WNBA player who found out that this country is a hell of a lot less trash than she thought it was when she was sitting in a Russian prison for nine months. Maybe, just maybe, these people who think this country is so bad because of the way it treats what they call marginalized communities, go find one that treats marginalized people like you better, and then let us know when you find it. Send us a postcard, okay? Those are important topics for me as we approach uh, Independence Day tomorrow, and I think they probably are for you, too. We'll take a time out here at 927. We've got Congressman Jim Jordan coming up. Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Spreading the light. 
of liberty and holding the line against the darkness of tyranny. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. 936, good Monday morning to you. Once again, thanks for being with us. We're talking patriotism this morning. We're talking about the birth of the greatest nation in the history of human civilization. We're talking about why so many radical Marxists and leftists uh, want nothing to do with it. Uh, Congressman Jim Jordan knows what it means to be a patriot. He is the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee and the Weaponization Subcommittee. Congressman, good to have you back. How are you, sir? I'm fine, Bob. Good to be with you. Happy, uh, happy fourth. Yeah, you know, it is for me, and it is for anybody who understands the privilege we have all been born with, uh, which is to be citizens of the United States of America. And and I was just looking, I was talking about this, and just get your reaction to this real quick, uh, a Gallup survey shows that a near record no a record low number of Americans are extremely proud of this country particularly in the younger generation the 18 to 34 year old group uh just 18% less than 2 in 10 yeah. um uh, in that age range are extremely proud to be in this country and I'm trying to figure out why I think I kind of have an idea because this is a group that 20 years ago you know when they were 8 to 14 year olds this is a group of people who um were were among the first to be indoctrinated with with anti-american irredeemably racist critical race theory type of messaging in our public schools what are your thoughts on on the lack of civic pride in 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 that younger generation no i think you probably uh you probably hit it it it's the it's the type of education they're getting or the lack of education maybe is a better way to say it and and lack of just history about you know this amazing country and what what has happened here the greatest nation ever not perfect but the best and and it's um, I just think they haven't got that. You know, you, but you you think about I, I always think about the Wright brothers. I, McCullough's book on the Wright brothers. These guys just decided they were going to do it. They were going to be the first in motorized flight, take off, fly, land, and they did it without taking a penny from the government. It's that attitude, that that spirit that's always been a part of this country. I just don't know that that in today's education system, kids are getting that history, getting that education. So I think that's probably um, probably the main the main reason why we see those. Those terrible numbers. Yeah, and I was even disappointed with the numbers of people 55 and older. Um, only half, five out of ten, 50 percent say they're extremely proud of this country. So there, there is definitely something going on here with the idea and the notion that you know this is a country that is you know steeped in uh, in racism and steeped in white privilege and white supremacy and so. And I guess Congressman Jordan, what do you expect when that is the the line that is being repeated by the President of the United States on a regular basis? You know, when he, when, he, yeah. when he degrades the United States, what are his people, what are the followers, what are his constituents expected to think? Yeah, when he stands in front of Independence Hall and calls half the country fascist. I mean, <laughs> go figure. But uh, that's, that's the state, unfortunately, of, the, of today's left, which I believe has control of one of the two major parties, the Democrat Party, in, in, in our system. Um, some, of, some of those numbers, though, could be because some people like, like you and I who love this country, who think it's the greatest nation ever, who are, who are patriotic, who love the flag and love everything this country, our history. Some, of, some people in, in that group may be saying, with the current leadership saying half of us are fascists, they may, that, that may be part of what's reflected in those numbers. So um, we don't know for sure. We'd have to get, kind of get, get behind in there and dig a little bit. But um, no, it's unfortunate. What I always tell people is in spite of everything we see, it's still the best thing going. And when you travel around this world, and my, Polly and I have had the chance to travel to a few places, you, you thank the good Lord when you come back here. And, and you get to be in the United States. You get to be in America, where, where I just think it's, it's, it's by far the greatest country ever. 
Well, this past Thursday and Friday, we got some evidence as to what makes this the greatest country in the world, and it's exactly what uh, many on the Marxist <laughs> radical left of the American, uh, in the American uh, uh, ideal, ideal, ideological scale, excuse me, uh, exactly what they hate. Now, let's talk about these one by one. Uh, what the Supreme Court decided on Thursday with respect to affirmative action, one would think would get the applause of everybody on the right and the left. They literally outlawed racial discrimination. Yep. And instead of celebrating that, because isn't that what the left has claimed that they were all about, they don't like racial discrimination, uh, that's what the court did here. And the left is now complaining and saying, no, wait, some racial discrimination is good, the kind that benefits black and brown people uh, and that and that harms uh, white and Asian people. Somebody's going to have to explain that to me, Congressman. Well, yeah, this is just common sense. Like, this is truly what Dr. King said, content of their character, not the color of people's skin. That's 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 how it's, it's our system works. It's about merit. It's about that is it was such a good decision, so consistent with with what, what I think things are supposed to be in this great country. I don't get what the left is, is, is opposed to here. But but you're right. This is, again, the crazy left in, in their position. But you think about think about what President Trump did by putting conservatives on the court. Look at the decisions we've got now in the last year. We got the pro-life Dobbs decision. We got the West Virginia EPA decision, which was great when it comes to the environmental and, and, and regulatory reform. We got this affirmative action decision, which is, again, is, is consistent with what Dr. King had, consistent with what this country is all about. And then, of course, we get the decision on, on, on religious liberty, and we get the decision on the student loan that says you can't just make it up on, on your own here, Joe Biden. You get that, that Anything like that would have to go through Congress. And so... Five huge decisions because the American people put a conservative in the White House who did what he said he was going to do and put three, three conservatives on the United States Supreme Court. That is that is what, what when you step back and look at why elections matter so much, we've got five huge decisions by the court that are consistent with our Constitution, consistent with the rule of law that happened because the American people put President Trump in the White House. That's a great summary, uh, Congressman Jordan. I I do want to drill down a little bit on a couple of them, particularly the student loan one. I I told the story on Twitter very briefly. One of my best friends from college has a a 23-year-old son. He couldn't afford to go to college. Uh, his his father, my my friend, uh, you know, they just didn't have those mm-hmm. funds. It was crazy, and decided it might be better to go another way. So what he did is he took a job with a plumber, as a, kind of an apprentice right out of school. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Um, and and he studied it for a year and and learned it, and then at the age of nineteen, took out a loan, uh, seventy five thousand dollar loan to buy a work van and a whole bunch of plumbing tools, and he started his own plumbing business. He's twenty three now, and he's doing well. But guess what? Um, that loan is still being paid back. What I want to know is if, if, you know, my kid or your kid or anybody else's kid can go to college and Joe Biden will forgive their loan for going to college, is he going to forgive the $75,000 loan that a exactly. non-college kid took out to go to work and, and, and to make something of himself and actually provide and contribute to the economy? No, it, it, exactly right. Great point. It gets right back to, like, it should be equal treatment. Uh, if, you, can't just, you can't just pick your favorite political... Uh, objective here and say, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna use taxpayer money to pay for that and not, not, not for, for the person who is, as you said, who took out a loan and, and started a small business is probably kicking butt because of, but he still has to pay back the $75,000. I mean, he signed on the contract. It's like, that's what he has to do. But old Joe Biden says, no, no, if you go to these schools that are teaching the stuff that we started talking about, the stuff that says you don't, America is not a great place and all that baloney, 
we're going to pay your student loan. But if you go create a business, hire people, and go out and provide a service to the American people, oh, oh you're going to have, you're go- you're going to be on your own. You're going to pay back your loan. There makes no sense, and it's why the American people said this is ridiculous. And thank goodness it's why the Supreme Court said you can't do it that way, Mr. Biden. The way our Constitution works is you want to do something like that, it's got to go through the Congress, got to go through the legislative branch before you sign on to it and do it. Uh, which, which obviously he didn't do in this, in this situation. Well, never one to take no for an answer from the Supreme Court. Joe Biden says, too bad, I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> now, instead of the HEROES Act, uh, word is he's going to use the 1965 Higher, Edu- uh, uh, Higher Education Act to enact this debt forgiveness. So he's, he's approaching it from another angle. Some of your colleagues in Congress, including Representative Ro Khan, I saw him yesterday talking about this, say, this is the answer and this one will be constitutional. Can you, can you expound, uh, expound, expand upon Well, that? I'm going to have to look. Uh, but but the truth is they're not going to get it through. Uh, they, they can they can. I mean Joe Biden thinks he's going to do it on his own and not run it through Congress. Uh, so it, he can try that again. I I still think that a, a, a big leap you something some the act that was passed what sixty years ago for goodness sake. I I don't I don't know. We'll have to do some research on it. I hadn't heard that, but I think it probably has many of the same problems that he tried with with the, using the Heroes Act. Mm-hmm. And not running it through the the, uh, the the House of Representatives in the United States Senate, not running it through the legislative branch. So we'll see, but there'll be a fight on that for sure. Um, and if we got to go back to court, we go back to court. I think he's doing this obviously because um, I think it's all about politics and, and and trying to turn turn people out to vote for Democrats uh, in, in the election next year. It's a vote-buying scheme. There's nothing, it, you know, I'm glad you said it. I've been saying this, and I haven't heard anybody in your position say this yet. It's a vote-buying scheme. He's trying to buy the votes of left-wing Democrats, uh, parents who don't want to have to pay their kids' loans back or, back, or these young recent graduates or kids who are in college right now, and they think, wow, if I vote for the Democrats, I won't have to pay all of my money back. That is exactly what this is. It's a vote-buying scheme, and that's why he didn't try to get it through Congress, and he did it with an executive order, which, of course, was unconstitutional. So I'm, I'm yep. glad to hear you call it exactly what it is briefly uh, on the other huge one from friday which is uh you know the free speech can you can you explain it in a way that even leftists will understand that this is not an anti-lgbtq decision it was not an anti-lgbq policy lgbtq policy by Lori smith of 303 creative uh when she said no i can't make a website promoting and helping to celebrate your same-sex wedding this is not about um, uh, sexual ideology. This is all about the First Amendment, isn't it? The first right in the First Amendment is your ability to practice your faith the way you think the good Lord wants you to. I argue this is why people came here in the first place. In Europe, they said, you got to practice your faith, you got to do your religion this way, and they said, no, we don't. And we're willing to get on the ship, risk it all, sail across this big ocean, and go to this place called America, or we can do it the way we think the good Lord wants us to. And our founders understood that so so fundamentally that that was the first right they put in the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights. So that's what this decision was about. And again, God bless the, 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 the six people in the United States Supreme Court who saw it in that simple, plain way that the founders understood that right to be, uh, to be able to be exercised by the American people. It is so consistent with, with the Constitution. And then for the left to say the, the crazy thing, it just doesn't make sense. No, it, it really does not. Uh, Congressman Jim Jordan is our guest. He is the uh, rank. Excuse me. He is the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee and the House Weaponization Subcommittee under the Judiciary. Let's talk about uh, the latest on the scandal. Um, you and uh, Representative Comer, Chairman Comer of Oversight, have uh, done great work in trying to expose the Biden criminal uh, syndicates. Um, 
uh, enrichment from foreign sources uh, in exchange for policy. Uh, I heard the number last week of $8.3 million. Now, um, James Comer went back on Fox again on Friday, I think it was on Friday, and said that the Biden family, according to the latest totals, have received over $20 million from foreign sources. Um, can you give us the latest on where that is and the attempt by the Biden defenders uh, to undercut the testimony of whistleblower Gary Shapley? Well, they're trying to say Mr. Shapley is some disgruntled employee, and that, that just is not consistent with anything we have heard from him and others. This is a 14-year veteran of the IRS, handled some of the biggest international tax evasion cases that they've had. Recovered, he said, like close to $5 billion, I think, for the American taxpayers in, in the scheme that they, they looked into. And everything he said he memorialized contemporaneously. When, right after these meetings took place, there's emails that he sent to why we did last week saying there that these i think i think is 11 12 13 different people we want to talk to they're, they're all the people that he memorialized in, in in his in his emails after these important meetings that took place so i think he's extremely credible the american people have seen him on on numerous shows where they can he comes across doing good work for the american taxpayer doing good um, and I think there's a lot of explaining the other side has to do, particularly David White, the U.S. attorney uh, from from the, uh, from Delaware. You wrote a letter to yeah. I'm sorry, sir. You wrote a letter to him. Uh, what 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 are you asking for from David Weiss? Well, we're asking what's the scoop here. Someone's not someone's not being square, and it sure doesn't look like it's the whistleblower because the whistleblower reports that David Weiss says he's not he doesn't have ultimate charging authority, and yet Merrick Garland says he does. And David Weiss says he does. David Weiss sent us a letter back. Uh, last week, where he says, "No, I do have the authority. I brought it to the, I brought the case to the to the D.C. Circuit, uh, to D.C. Uh, District, and to the Central District of California. I did that. They're the ones that turned." So again, we want to talk to all these people and find out exactly what took place there. Because Merrick Garland says you had ultimate charging authority, and yet when you take the case to D.C., take it to California, and they get turned down, and it, it, you don't get to bring the case. Who's really deciding here? Is it you, or is it these other these other uh, U.S. attorneys and and or uh, Merrick Garland. That that is what we have to find out because someone is not being square. I want to go back to Shapley for a moment, and you may have hit this part. A lot of what you said was glitched out. Your phone had a lot of interference there, so if you you already said this part, I apologize. But Shapley's claim that they were shut down when it came to pursuing anything further than Hunter Biden in the tax investigation, anything pursuing, uh, any pursuit that led anywhere near Joe Biden, uh, the big guy, was shut down. Um, they're claiming that he made that up. Um, did you address that? And if not, can you address that? Because I think that's as 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 uh, important and extreme and an extreme part of this as anything so far is that they deliberately said we're protecting Joe Biden, the president. Yeah, we want. This is why I want to talk to Assistant U.S. Attorney in in Delaware. That's Leslie Wolf, because according to Mr. Shapley, she's the one who indicated you're not allowed to uh, ask about the president. You're not allowed to use the term "big guy" when you interview other witnesses involved in this case. Uh, she also said that that uh, she turned down uh, the search warrant, uh, or they wanted to in, uh, wanted to search the storage unit. Um, she also gave the Hunter Biden's lawyers. She tipped them off when they were talking to certain people. Um, so there's a number of questions we have for Miss Wolf, who is the uh, assistant U.S. attorney there in in Delaware. Um, we think that's important. That's one of the key people we had on our list of folks that we want to talk to. 
Congressman, after you and I spoke last week, some of my callers uh, and listeners and your constituents called and said, why aren't they calling Hunter Biden himself to testify? Can you subpoena him to come before your committee and testify to some of these things, or do you have to stick with the lawyers and the whistleblowers? No, no, we, we, uh, we ultimately could, could, uh, could look at that. The, um, I do think you want to, to follow the, the course that Mr. Shapley has laid out. And go with these these witnesses, and that's why we're 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 moving in in that direction. Um, but I don't think you know I've said all along nothing is everything's on the table. Uh, you saw what the speaker said last week that uh, in, in essence we're beginning to look at, according to the speaker, uh, beginning to look at you know possible inquiry, impeachment inquiry into the attorney general because you know as I said before, someone's not being square here, and it sure as as I've said many times, it sure doesn't look like it's Mr. Shapley. It sure doesn't look like it's a whistleblower. His story seems extremely credible and right on point and backed up with documents that he sent contemporaneously to other people who confirmed what he said in those emails. So um, we do want to talk to these folks, but no table. Uh, that's, I think that's the only way you can do your job right is you've got it, everything to be on the table when it comes to oversight. Uh, but there's a sequence and a, and, a, and, a, and a way you want to proceed, and we're trying to do that in, 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 in the right manner. Last thing for you, Congressman Jordan, uh, with all of the stuff involving the Bidens and uh, your work and the Oversight Committee's work, Ways and Means and so forth, we haven't talked a ton, you and I, about uh, the border in recent weeks. Um, is there a movement afoot right now to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas on their election of duty in protecting this country, this homeland? What we're doing is, is in our committee, particularly the subcommittee on immigration, uh, having a series of hearings, looking at the border situation even more and, and trying to dig in as, as in-depth in as we can. Uh, and then the same is happening over in Homeland Security. And that is, that's going to be a several-week process probably into the fall. And then I think we'll, we'll make a decision whether there's, there's, there's uh, you know, whether we move, move forward with something, something more. Um, but Chairman Green and the Homeland Security, and these, these are the two committees that put together the package we passed about two months ago that was, I think, the strongest immigration enforcement border security package ever, ever put through, uh, legisl- strongest legislation ever to get through the House of Representatives. And in fact, we couldn't get it through back when we were in the majority under the, under the previous speaker. So this is a credit to Speaker McCarthy and our team that we were able to get this, this done. Um, and so we're now looking at Mr. Mayorkas and what's, what's been going on over there. And then we'll have, uh, I think, uh, some kind of decision on, on how we proceed in the fall. You're juggling a lot of chainsaws right now. I recognize that and respect that. Thank you so much for giving us an update on all of those things, Congressman Jordan. We'll talk to you again next week. You bet. Have a great fourth. Take care. Thank you, sir. You too. That's Jim Jordan on AM 1420, The Answer. I don't know how they keep it all straight, 100% honest with you. There's so many investigations that needed to be uh, begun and need to continue, and uh, he's in the middle of so many of them. So uh, we certainly appreciate the update on all of those things from Jim Jordan. We'll take a time out and come back on Always Right Radio. I can feel the sinking Then I came around Okay, 957. Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer thanks to Congressman Jim Jordan. Yeah, just a quick follow-up on one of the questions I asked Jim Jordan about the 303 creative decision. We caught into this a little bit on Friday with Peter Kirsten now, but as always, we're limited by time when these things literally came down uh, in the middle of our conversation. 303 Creative is the website design company built by Lori Smith in Colorado, and it's not a coincidence that this happened in Colorado. The Colorado radicals 
Uh, they are doing everything they can to try to attack people of faith and ask them to do something regarding LGBTQ same-sex marriages or transitions that they know will be refused so they can then file another lawsuit. This is all they do. They live to do this. They've been doing it to Jack Smith for going on, what, 12 years now? Now they're doing it to Lori Smith. Uh, this is what they do. So Jack Phillips, I'm sorry, I think I said Smith. Jack Jack Phillips and then Lori Smith. This is what they do. So they went to her knowing full well that she would uh, say, no, I can't do a same-sex wedding website. Because I'm a Christian, and I believe marriage is between a man and a woman, and I don't want to do that. I won't contribute my speech, my voice, my creative, my creativity to that. That's exactly what they wanted her to do, is say no so that they could sue. And they did. And lo and behold, it went from court to court to court to court, finally to the Supreme Court, that said enough. And this is not an LGBTQ, anti-gay decision by the court. This is a pro-First Amendment decision by the court saying you cannot make her make something that she doesn't want to make, that violates her beliefs, violates her faith. Our First Amendment to the Constitution guarantees us a right to not be censored in our speech nor compelled to make speech, say things, produce things, create things that we do not believe in. I hope people understand what that court decision really, really means. 216-901-0945. Join us as we continue Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420. The answer. Hour number two underway now at nine minutes past ten o'clock on this Monday, the third morning of the seventh month of the year of our Lord 2023. I just get giddy when I realize that it's July. Oh, what a glorious month it is. There are 11 glorious months. And then there is one that is just absolutely torturous. It's a glorious month. It's a glorious morning. Because kids aren't going into their preschools or their daycares or their, well, I know it is uh, kind of in the summer now, so there aren't actual schools going on, but the preschools certainly are going to be bombarded with pride flags and all of the other nonsense. Some of the crap that has made millions and millions of parents so frustrated with their public schools that they're trying to find a way out. They're tired of their kids being hit over the head with racial theory, sexual uh, ideology, sexualization, period, CSE, comprehensive sexual education, and so much more. They're just tired of it. The kids are being indoctrinated instead of educated, so they're looking for outs. They're looking for private schools. So many millions of families can't afford them. They're looking for Catholic schools. They're looking for charters that they can find those. And quite frankly, some of those aren't the answer either. I know a lot of Catholic schools in the area, and I graduated from Catholic school. My wife graduated from a Catholic school. Both of our kids went to a Catholic school, and it happens to be, by the way, a glorious one. They are not woke. They don't do that stuff, but so many of the others do. So some of those aren't the answer, and so millions and millions of families are saying, can we homeschool the kids? But it's a daunting task. Do you know how to teach? 
Do you have the time to teach? If both parents are working, who's going to do it? It's not an easy thing to think about, but it's something that people have to think about. And they have to consider because, quite frankly, the alternative is, is, is deadly for our culture. Meaning, leaving all of our children to be indoctrinated in government schools, which I think is a more accurate way of saying public schools. They're government-run, government-controlled. And it's deadly for our culture. Because these children here are going to one day be in charge of it all. So I want to talk a little bit about homeschooling. I want to talk a little bit about how difficult it is. And I want to talk with someone who is trying to make it more easy for you to do. Taya Shoemake is a homeschool advocate. She's the founder of homeschoolreadyornot.com. It's a comprehensive online guide that helps shepherd parents, maybe like you, through uh, the, the, the unfamiliar adventure of homeschooling. Taya, thank you so much for coming on and joining us this morning. How are you today? Good morning, Bob. It's great to be here. I'm doing well. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming on, and thank you for doing what you do. Um, I don't know everything you do, but I have browsed the website, and it's enough for me to know that you are helping to make things a little bit more understandable for parents who are just at their wits' end and and realizing that they cannot trust the government-run schools to educate their children properly. Tell me about the genesis of the idea of uh, homeschoolreadyornot.com. Well, I purchased the domain name several years ago, and we were still homeschooling at the time, which is, uh, it, you know, homeschooling is a misnomer because you're rarely home. And for whatever reason, we did not, I didn't do much with the website, but I procured it because I would get a steady stream of inquiries, usually every August, about, hey, how do you get started in homeschooling? What about curricula? How do I find community, et cetera? And I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have a, a, an aggregate of information because it is, the amount of information is overwhelming to a lot of people. And so fast forward to COVID and those inquiries spiked, if you'll pardon the pun. And so I thought, we're empty nesters now. Let's go ahead and, and try to make this website available to people. It's video based and people uh, have wrote in asking about homeschool myths or what about socialization and all of the things that uh, that parents think about when deciding to pull the trigger. And so we're just we're just trying to give it a good go and put a resource that is, again, that aggregate of information to help parents decide, hey, is this for me? Can we do it? And how? Well, let's talk about some of those questions that people write in and ask about. Let's start with the one you mentioned. It's socialization. That's a bit, that's a great concern to a lot of people, uh, saying, you know, look, my kids need to be around other kids so they can learn how to deal, uh, in social situations. They can make friends. They know maybe how to deal with people who are not necessarily friendly to them and so forth. It's a big part of growing up is you got to be around other kids. So how do you address that? And I love this question because socialization was exactly the topic that flipped the switch for my husband. I was ready to homeschool when our children were born. He was not. It wasn't something I wanted to do without his support. So as a result, our oldest went to traditional school. She was a, a you know, fall birthday, young, six-year-old. And we, the school was fine. We loved the teacher. During the parent-teacher conference in the spring, she let us know that in this group of 16 students, the desks were four by four. And they would often put our six-year-old at the group of desks with the children who misbehaved, hoping she would rub off on them. What? And Okay. So wow. that is 
and my point when I speak to parents about this is this. Look, someone is going to be socializing your child, probably not in the way you think. And it's a matter of who, for how long each day, and to what impact. So, you know, my first thought as a mama bear was this precious firstborn box checker is probably wondering what she's done wrong to be put at this table and why the teachers think of her in this manner. Now, obviously, that's not why we send them to school. So long story short, when we got in the car, my husband looked at me and said, do you think you'd be ready to homeschool in the fall? And so the socialization issue of homeschooling, especially now, Bob, I'm not talking about, and, and we all stand on the shoulders of the pioneers who homeschooled before it was legal in all 50 states. And that the amount of information and communities into which people can yoke, it is, like I said, it's almost overwhelming, um, but it's a wonderful, beautiful thing that communities are available everywhere. And whether your child is in club sports, we have a lot of um, those uh, families that travel and the lifestyle is beautiful, beautiful for that flexibility, or people are, again, just taking their children out of school because they found out what's coming out of backpacks which, by the way, and I heard you mention that, we found during our four-year fight at the State House against Common Core, critical theory, social-emotional learning, the comprehensive sex ed, that was all in the fine and not-so-fine print of Race to the Top, which was the federal cage in which Common Core flew into Ohio. Wow. And uh, it's extraordinarily important to note you might not find that in print anymore, fine or not so fine print. They just Correct. do it. They don't. They just make sure it's not written anywhere so that they can't uh, be held accountable for it. Um, the website I'm looking at right now is homeschoolreadyornot.com. The founder is Taya Shoemake, a uh, homeschool advocate. One more question on the on the uh, socialization thing. It's one thing, you know, to have the uh, situation you described with your daughter being put at the table with the troublemaker so she could rub off on them. But just what about the social stigma that exists? Kids, you know, being kids, mock. You know, they mock, you know, even if they're in public school. If somebody's different in some way, if somebody's considered to be, uh, you, you know, just for whatever reason not popular as the others, you know, they get mocked and they get made fun of. It's part of growing up. Um, a lot of the what I hear is, you know, as complaints from parents is that the in-school, traditional in-school kids, even if your kids want to go and participate in the extracurriculars, club sports or whatever with them, they treat them as being oddities. You know, there's the kid who doesn't come to school. There's the kid who gets homeschooled. Any concern or how, I'm sure there is concern, how do you approach that from a standpoint of not having your kids be made fun of or mocked by the kids who are in traditional classes? You know, Bob, isn't it ironic that they're not going to mock a child who thinks that's a cat and can sit and purr in front of the teacher's desk, and yet they're going to mock a homeschool child? Um, the the mocking, I think that should well, to, be to be clear, is, to be clear about that one, Taya, you're not allowed to mock the kid who sits in the corner and exactly. purrs. Exactly. You mock that kid, you are a bigot and you are in trouble. So they, you're not allowed to do that. But I'm sorry, go on. So our our youngest actually went to a um, to take. He passed me in math quickly, and so we found a local resource, a, a local high school, where he could take calculus, and uh, really the only mocking that was done was tantamount to, oh, we better up our game because there's a homeschooler in calculus. So, you know, I, I, the great thing about homeschool, one of the many great things, is that parents can ameliorate or mitigate that situation. And it's just one of the, the beautiful things that 
is yielded by the relationship that you build. It's not perfect. No educational environment is perfect because we're dealing with people. Mm-hmm. That said, you have the opportunity as the parent to shepherd your child from the earliest stages through all of the different stages in life and, you know, help them become functional adults. And what you see in other homeschool families, if you don't like it, you can do something else. And that's the beauty and liberty of the lifestyle. Now, another element to this is is capability. You are obviously educated and able to do the things that you did as a homeschool mom. Um, there may be people who agree with everything you said, and it's the right thing to do for them. It's the right thing for their kid. But mom isn't a great student, wasn't a great student herself, or dad. I don't, depending on the, the the dynamics of that family, who's working and who's able to stay home and educate and homeschool the kids. But the mom or the dad, look, all of the intentions are right, but I don't have the ability to. I'm just not, you know, I wasn't a great student. Doesn't mean I'm dumb, but you know the story. Some some people are really, really good at school and some are not, and some certainly can teach it and others cannot. What advice do you have for the parents who are really, really into the idea but don't feel like they have the capability of processing the material themselves and explaining it to and instructing their own kids with it? I would say, number one, Bob, I was not a great student at all. Um, Number two, if you are insecure about teaching third-grade math, I would ask you to please consider why then you would send your child back to the same system that made you insecure about teaching third-grade math. And number three, homeschooling is difficult on on a good day, but not for the reasons people think. It's not because of calculus. It's not because of physics. Because there are so many resources for parents, scripted, non-scripted, depends on your background, and you can find those resources in every subject. And you can sit down on a Sunday night and go, okay, here's what we're doing in language arts. You can look at it. You can see what, and again, they're scripted for you. And I would say as an ancillary benefit, you have the opportunity to learn things you didn't learn the first time around or relearn something with your adult eyes. And your children will pick up on that enthusiasm, that curiosity, and that lifelong learning. It's one of the very many perks. And again, it's challenging on a good day, but more so because of the responsibility and the weight. And we want every parent, regardless of where their child sits, to take ownership of and responsibility for their child's education. And I think what we're seeing in the school board meetings and parents trying to re-engage after they found out what was going on during distance learning is that they felt betrayed. And when they tried to re-engage, they found themselves either being silenced, removed, or worse, arrested. And it's uh, they just doubled down on that betrayal. That's what I'm hearing a lot. And so, I, you know, I was never one to say, hey, everyone should homeschool because I don't think it's for everyone. But I am of the mindset right now that maybe more people should think about doing it than not. Yeah, I think that's fair. We're talking with Taya Shoemake. She is the founder of homeschoolreadyornot.com. It's just like it sounds, no abbreviations, homeschoolreadyornot.com. It's a comprehensive online guide to help you uh, become a homeschool parent and, uh, and and figure out how to answer all of these questions and make this work. The last part for me is let's suppose you can get through all of the things we've discussed so far, but it's just a matter of time. Both parents work. Um, in this economy at this time, uh, you kind of almost have to have both parents working. Uh, 
Uh, it's a luxury if you don't. Uh, but if you just don't have the opportunity and the time and the day to spend that time homeschooling your kid or kids, uh, what what's the next step? That's a great question. So when we funnel down the process to get started, it's get legal, get curricula, and get community, but not necessarily in that order. I just like the way it rolled off the tongue. Getting community is paramount. And if you are in a situation where both parents are working or you are um, a nurse and you're on that 12-12-12 schedule, um, I can guarantee you that there is someone already doing it. That's the beautiful part about in-person community. And, it, it again, the resources are, uh, there are a plethora of resources to find community. We have that on our resource page um, where you can go to a, an aggregate of, um, uh, like, the states and find homeschool resources. Chances are, Bob, a lot of people already know someone that does homeschool, and they can help introduce them to a live in-person community. But there are, peop- there are parents who work, both parents who work, we have single moms. The community is as diverse as the general population at large. So that would be my suggestion to people who think we can't do it, we really want to do it, but can't do it because of this. Just seek out community, especially now, especially in the summer where there's no rush, no one's freaking out over getting started and, and maybe wrapping up last-minute details. There, there are communities out there that can help you. It's extraordinarily important for people to know that this option is available. So many moms and dads are getting so frustrated. They didn't know until COVID happened exactly what was going on, until they could see the lessons and see the instruction on the laptop over their kid's shoulder to really find out that we cannot keep our kids in these schools. So this has to be an option. As you say, maybe not for everybody, but certainly it should be available to everybody who feels like it's for them. Homeschoolreadyornot.com is the website. Taya Shoemaker is the founder. Taya, thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for uh, shouting it out to us here this morning. We appreciate that. Pleasure, pleasure, Bob. I appreciate it. Thank you. God bless. 1025 now. We're going to take a time out. Coming up after the bottom of the hour, Kenny Shue is going to rejoin us. It's been a little bit, but I'm looking forward to catching up with him. Kenny Shue has been one of the leading voices opposing affirmative action based on race in higher education because of the discrimination against higher qualified students, many of them Asian and white students being shut out of schools because of the preferential treatment given to black or brown or ethnic minority students. Only some ethnic minorities apply, though. Ethnic minorities like Asians, well, you get the story. Kenny Shoes of uh, Cut, uh, Color Us United will join us after the bottom of the hour. Stay here. Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. you reason in the age of unreason always right radio with bob france and the answer 1035 thanks for being with us this morning on always right radio am 1420 the answer it was a glorious day on thursday when we found out that affirmative action was going to be repealed as it pertains to admissions in higher education but not for the radical left the radical left racists who say they oppose racial discrimination until, of course, racial discrimination is uh, used against whites and Asian people, then they full and wholeheartedly, fully and wholeheartedly support it. That's what we found out. 
That's why they are just uh, grinding their teeth. They're furious right now to find out that, no, uh, white students and Asian students are not second-class citizens to be turned away so that college admissions directors can color up their campus. Joining us now to discuss this is somebody who's been fighting this for a very, very long time. Kenny Shu is the president and primary spokesman of Color Us United online at colorusunited.org. Kenny Shu, thank you so much for joining us once again. How are you this morning? I'm great. I'm excited for the ruling. I know you are, and uh, this is something, as I say, you have been working with and uh, and against this uh, this racist admissions policy, this discriminatory admissions policy at Harvard and at other universities. What was your first reaction? Was it expected on Thursday? Did you uh, did you expect the court to come down the way they did? It was what I hoped for. You know, this is this ruling is an important step, but I have a larger vision. I started really campaigning for a colorblind society back in 2021, um, joining this ruling as a board member for Students for Fair Admissions, the group that sued Harvard. And this is an important step because it does ensure that Asian Americans and all people will be treated based on their merit in college admissions. But it does not take out the divisive narrative that's goading our country into trying to reprioritize race into all kinds of things. So we have to continue to fight and uh, be activists, you know, and, and say what's wrong with not assuming things about people based on their race. What's wrong with treating people according to their merit? Nothing is wrong with that. We have to be confident. We have to hold the line. The Supreme Court gave us real legitimization of that, and we have to hold the line. Kenny Hsu's book, which came out in 2021 as well, is An Inconvenient Minority, The Harvard Admissions Case and the Attack on Asian American Excellence. And we've talked about that in some uh, in some depth, Kenny, and I know you have in a lot of other places as well. Let's talk about the word colorblind since it's uh, what you're seeking. Katanji Brown-Jackson wrote in the dissent in this case uh, that colorblindness is not something that should be sought. Quote, with let-them-eat-cake obliviousness, today the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. But deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life, she said. How, as the president of Color Us United, how did you respond to that when you first heard it? That Ketanji Brown-Jackson just wants rights for black Americans? I mean, how much more tribalist can you get? You're a Supreme Court justice. You're supposed to represent the entirety of America, not just your own tribe and your own race, okay? It is undeniable that giving more privileges for black Americans comes at the expense of qualified Asian Americans in this ruling. That's that's just the case. It's a zero-sum game, guys. If you lower your standards for black Americans, you are discriminating against whites and Asians. So Ketanji Brown-Jackson, by saying our goal is not to be colorblind, so what's your goal? So your goal is preferences for black Americans? Really? That's what you're going to make your legal stand on? She's a compromised justice. But her argument and those who support her, Kenny Shu, are saying, but it's all about fundamental fairness. Look, only six, even with the policy in place, only 6.6% or so of the Harvard population is black. And so that's not nearly enough. Isn't it, wouldn't it be more fair to have more blacks uh, on the campus at Harvard being given the same opportunity to get a degree from the elite institution that it is uh, that, uh, that other races have? No, it would be fair to treat people based on merit. Look, black Americans, they, they have SAT scores above 700 in math, 
only only one percent of the SAT scores above seven hundred in math are are black or black Americans, and we know how people get high SAT scores because you know they're innately intelligent and because they study. You know, and those are both meritorious characteristics for academic achievement. You know, you're supposed to get in based on merit. Everybody knows that Harvard is not social welfare. Uh, Harvard is supposed to be training the best and the brightest. Okay, and if it just so happens that Asian Americans are studying really hard, doing really well, and are intelligent and have good family structures to support that, they should be rewarded for that. See, but Kenny, you're doing something now that you're not allowed to do, according to the left. Um, you keep focusing on Asians and Asian Americans. They turned this literally from the moment that court decision was announced on Friday, or Thursday rather, they turned it into an attack on whiteness. It is, this is black and white, that this decision uh, simply promotes and perpetuates and protects white privilege and white supremacy in America. That, that, that saying we can't use race, uh, to consider, or consider race rather for admissions at Harvard for, it is, it's discriminatory against black kids and it benefits white people. They don't even want the Asian factor to be a point of discussion here. Yeah, I'm not even trying to focus on Asian because but you should be. I apologize. Well, you should be because they are the ones who are more discriminated against in this case, particularly at Harvard, than whites are. Asians are well, suffered more from the affirmative action policies than even whites did. Whites, whites did, but they don't want to talk yes, about that. But, they want this to be black and white. Yes, but provocatively say, speaking, I, I don't care about Asians winning this as much as I care about the fixating and focusing. Stop focusing on race. Focus on culture. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's let's focus on this on the study hours that Americans of all races can put in, but are garnered at disproportionate rates. Asians disproportionately study more than the average American. That's why Asians are important to this narrative. Not because Asians are Asian. That's not why I support them. I support the crusade for meritocracy. That's what I support. And also in my new book, School of Woke, which is coming out. Uh, and you can pre-order it right now, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, I talk about minority achievement. Specifically, black kids are doing... In K-12 education right now is a disgrace for all races, but especially for black kids uh, who disproportionately live in inner-city schools in which corruption and critical race theory and the depressive theory that America is a racist country reign and destroy young minds so this is what's happening in our country it's not about oh i support asians because they're asian it's i support the pursuit of excellence for all cultures and school of woke sheds light to that i'm glad to to hear that and i and, and for those who don't know you are a second generation chinese american um it, but that's not the focus of this for you and i get that i as a as a caucasian i'm the one focusing on it simply by the numbers because of the number of asians who have as you say because they work harder study harder not just more than blacks but more than whites more than virtually every other race racial ethnicity uh and their success is extraordinary and uh, they should not be punished for that simply so that we can get a more diverse or equitable number of students into a school um so I, I i do want to hit that and by the way thanks for the info on the book i did not know you had another book coming out school of woke i'm looking at it now how critical race theory infiltrated american schools and why we must reclaim them kenny going back to harvard um this is the response from harvard one of the institutions involved in this case they've already issued a statement asserting they will continue to discriminate based on race quote 
The court held that Harvard College's admission system does not comply with the principles of the Equal Protection Clause embodied in Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. The court also ruled that colleges and universities may consider in admissions decisions an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. We will certainly comply with the court's decision. Diversity is essential to academic excellence. Kenny, it sounds to me like they're saying, too bad, we're going to continue doing it. I think Harvard is being a typical Harvard arrogant self. I assure you that if Harvard tries anything like requiring diversity statements from their applicants, that will be struck down by the court as well. And there's a lot of money in, in Harvard. There will be enough lawsuits to ensure that. So they, they can't get away with this. We all know what they did. They used the personality score to discriminate against Asian Americans. You know, if they, if they, by the way, I'm not opposed to people talking about their race in and in the their admissions essay if that's really what they're most passionate about fine you can talk about it i would personally disagree with it i just don't want people who don't talk about their race who instead talk about things like their achievements you know learning lessons things other than racist and racial discrimination i don't i just don't want them to be penalized in the application process so i really think the essay graders should be neutral parties and also the person you know they should grade them based on the quality of their essay not on what they choose to argue about that's very well said and you know this the part we're talking to kenny shu he's the president of color us united the author of an inconvenient minority as well as the book he just told us about a school of woke um the the dissenters uh, led by Katanji Brown Jackson and those who support her continue to say that look being affirmative toward minority students is important and maybe it is, but as David Harsanyi wrote in the Federalist, I want to quote him here. Uh, what they fail to concede is that for every instance of affirmative race based admission, which may be a noble endeavor. There is a corresponding instance of race-based discrimination. In other words, if you bend over backwards to let a black student in just simply because you're trying to help them, that may be a noble thing to do. But if they take the place of somebody who has worked their tail off and, and, and earned a spot in an incoming class at Harvard or anywhere else for that matter, that's, that's discrimination. That's unfair. They, that's the element of this they don't seem to understand, Kenny. Right, right. It, it is unfair. I want a merit-based society. I want merit-based admissions. Now, people like to tell me all the time, Kenny, Harvard is never admitted based on merit. Harvard's a glorified country club. And the presence of legacy admissions proves that, by the way. It's like you're, you have a five times higher rate to get admitted if you're legacy. And if you're a chilled child of a donor, I mean, like $10 million and above, guys, not like your $1,000 donation, um, right. then you have a you know 40% chance of admissions at least. Um, so... Harvard, let's, I'm going to be honest right here about what this ruling is. We attacked the most prominent university in America and the world for a lot of different reasons. One of it because it, because it symbolizes elite America. We, I really, I have a crusade with my organization, Colorist United, to attack the foundations of elitism. If you're going to be elite, I'm not, I'm, I'm fine with people being elites, but I want elitism based on merit. I want us to be rewarding people based on merit. And so Harvard has treaded down this wrong road for a very long time. They've been rewarding people based on unmerited privilege uh, and affirmative action for a very long time. And you know what's being crunched in between? Merit. 
So, yeah, attacking Harvard is part of my larger strategic goal of ensuring that our best and brightest are are admitted and rewarded based on being the best and brightest. Yeah, and, and I get that. Uh, and I think that comes uh, comes through very clearly in your writings and in your interviews and in your books. Uh, so th- that's very important to note. I want meritocracy, too. And as, as reticent as you are to focus on Asians, um, despite your first book being focused on the inconvenient minority of being Asian, I just want you to respond to this. Asian Wave Alliance. Are you familiar with Asian Wave Alliance? I think so, yeah. I'm not sure who it is, but I just uh, th- this just struck me. Um, uh, the president of Asian Wave Alliance is somebody named Yatin Chu, if I'm saying that correctly, went on Twitter after the decision on Thursday uh, to, to praise it and said, quote, I told my daughter that today is a big day. They've ended affirmative action. Isn't it what you've been fighting for, she asked? I said yes. A response to that came from left-wing activist Jamel Hill, used to be on ESPN, now writes for The Atlantic and as many other left-wing uh, places that she can, responded by saying, quote, can't wait until she reads that you gladly carried the water for white supremacy and stabbed the folks in the back whose people fought dil- diligently for Asian American rights in America. What is your reaction to that? Uh, you know, she's African American, Jamel Hill. She accuses Asians of carrying the water for white supremacy by by attacking uh, affirmative action. Uh, my response is sit down, Jamel Hill. <laughs> you you don't understand what here's what Thomas Sowell said. Okay, Thomas Sowell, famous economist, said when you're used, and I'm just paraphrasing here, when you're used. To preferential treatment, equal treatment seems, sounds like discrimination. And, and that's basically what happened. Um, of people, we've been living in the bathwater of affirmative action for the past 50 years to the point where a black student who has 273 points lower on the SAT has a higher chance of admission than an Asian student. But we've been living in the bathwater of preferences for the past 50 years, and, all the, and the court's saying now you have to treat people equally, and now she freaks out. And calls these and calls these Asian Americans racist for for what? For advocating for equal treatment? No, you don't get to do that. We're we're restoring the foundations of fairness, and it is going to hurt Black Americans in the short term. But in the long term, it's going to be better because it's going to ensure that people are treated based on their merit, which everybody wants, and which uh, responds to people and those kinds of things. I'm not I'm not going to deny that. But the fact that Asian Americans are standing up for equal treatment is white supremacy. That's insane. And, you know, when you the one thing I might take issue with that you just said is that everybody wants, you know, meritocracy. And clearly they don't. That's the point. That's what Ketanji Brown Jackson, who, by the way, is a beneficiary of uh, affirmative action, because Joe Biden made it very clear. He said, I'm the, my, the next Supreme Court justice is going to be a black female. Uh, so he has already made sure this is about diversity. He's checking boxes, not about the highest qualified jurist to sit with a lifetime appointment on the highest court in the land. Um, but but those who, who support and champion affirmative action don't want meritocracy because the numbers are going to be skewed. There are going to be uh, you know, there is going to be an overwhelming disproportionate number of, of, uh, of Asian Americans and perhaps whites on a lot of these campuses. And they don't want that, which is, of course, the reason for our discussion and the reason for this policy that they had put in place. They condemn you, Kenny Shu, and they condemn anybody else for promoting 
um, the cultural aspect of Asians. You talked about it in one of your first responses to me about the disproportionate number of hours that they study and the preparation that they put into you know, their educations. They don't want you talking about that because that, by comparison, denigrates black culture saying black culture doesn't study, black culture doesn't champion, uh, you know, grades and SAT scores and so on and so forth, and that makes it seem as if it's a racial attack. Can you respond to that? Yeah, and you just have to think about this in a, just take yourself out of the scenario for a second. It's not Asian culture, it's not black culture. It's the culture of certain people in certain groups who happen to have a certain skin color. There are many blacks who study 13 hours a week. There are many Asians who, who don't. But disproportionately, this is what we're getting. Um, so let's step away. Let's not let's let's deracialize it for a second. But but you know, but here you know, I do acknowledge that that the fact that we're able to call this an attack on Asians is politically useful in some regard. Um, this, I mean, my first book was called "An Inconvenient Minority," is about how Asians inconvenience the narrative of the left. But ultimately, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to use the left's race conception to attack the left, which is great. It, it's, it's awesome. You know, and this is why the left doesn't want to talk about Asians. It's like, okay, um, so you, we're going to play on your playing field now. You want to talk about racism and race and minorities. So what about Asians? Oh, we, don't, we want to talk about race, but we don't want to talk about that race. You know what I'm saying? I so do. that's why we do it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very well said. Last question for you, Kenny, is after the court made their decision or the ruling was announced on Thursday, uh, many uh, experts um, kind of kind of speculated that this isn't going to be limited now to higher education admissions. That this is going to spread to corporate affirmative action. Uh, racial quotas that uh, corporations and employers are not now going to feel the need to hire a certain amount of people based on their skin color rather than their qualifications. Do you support meritocracy going from the educational realm into the employment and corporate realm as well? I mean, yeah, it's, that's a rhetorical question. Of course, I do. Um, the, I mean, I guess it's not a rhetorical question. I answered it. But it's an obvious question. Of course I support it. And actually, let me, let me rephrase it. Let me rephrase that, it, Kenny. I know you support it. Let me rephrase and say, do you think it will happen that way? Do you think that this decision, which was specifically on higher education, will translate into corporate changes as well? You know, I do. And that seems like an optimistic viewpoint. But I, I do because remember that DEI was just a result of affirmative action. The whole corporate preferences, uh, most businesses, they don't. They don't want to lose money, so they would they would actually prefer not hiring. I mean, hiring based on quotas. So the fact that the Supreme Court is striking this down in the education system, I think, is going to lead to more businesses uh, hiring based on merit. I, I I certainly think that's a reasonable position. I think that's probably likely to happen, although there will be those pushbacks as well. And, of course, you support it, and so do I. Anybody who supports meritocracy rather than hiring or admitting based on what somebody looks like is going to have that view. So I learned something new today. Kenny Shue's got a new book out. School. I own uh, um, An Inconvenient Minority, and I'm looking forward to getting this one as well. It looks like uh, August 1st is when it is out. You can pre-order it. It's School of Woke, How Critical Race Theory Infiltrated American Schools and Why We Must Reclaim Them. Kenny Shu, President of Color Us United, you're doing phenomenally important work. I thank you for doing that work, and I thank you for sharing it here with us. So glad. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. There's Kenny Shu. 
by the way, I, I look at the um, the website for Colorus United. You know what I love about it as much as, if not more than anything, I love who they are. W- what I mean by that is I'm looking at their uh, their staff, their team. Kenny Shu is Asian. Christian Watson is African American. Raymond Wong is Asian. DeRoy Murdoch is African American. Uh, F. Levin is uh, is Caucasian. James Lindsay is Caucasian. Yu Kang Zhao is Asian. Uh, Christopher Rufo is Caucasian. Ward Connerly is African American. Michael Gonzalez is Hispanic American. Uh, Leondis Johnson is African American. Doctor Wenyan Wu is Asian. Christopher Harris is African American. Sanjay Narayan is Indian American. I mean, you talk about diversity, not based on diversity hiring, but based on meritocracy and people who believe in meritocracy. That's what they put together on Color Us United. It's a fantastic group. 1056, we'll be back. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. is Always Right Radio with Bob Franz on AM 1420, The Answer. Oh, yes, indeed. Hour number three of a Monday program at nine minutes after the hour of 11 o'clock on the third morning of the seventh month in the year of our Lord, 2023. Underway, great conversation so far today. Spoke in the first hour, if you missed it, with Congressman Jim Jordan. Spoke uh, on all of the Supreme Court discussions, by the way, and the ongoing investigation into the Bidens, which we'll get back into. Spoke in hour number two with Taya Shoemake, who is a strong uh, homeschooling advocate with uh, some great ideas on how to get your, uh, your homeschooling project started to keep your kids out of the government schools. Very, very important. And just spoke with Kenny Shu of Color Us United on the affirmative action decision, which, by the way, the left apparently has no interest whatsoever in agreeing with or following. Harvard's president-elect has decided to make an announcement saying, go to hell, Supreme Court, we don't have to do that. Claudine Gay is the president-elect at Harvard, and she says that at Harvard we're going to do basically what we want to do. The Supreme Court's decision on college and university admissions will change how we pursue the educational benefits of diversity. But our commitment to that work remains steadfast. It's essential to who we are and the mission that we are here to advance. 
for nearly nine years. I'm going to stop there and underscore that. <clears throat> it's essential to who we are and what and and what we do. Paraphrase is is making sure that we have a diverse student body. I thought that the essential mission of a university, whether it be Harvard or a community college, is the best education for the students. And more importantly, or as importantly, that the most qualified students fill those precious spots at your in your university's classes. I thought it was about achieving academic excellence, not propping up the underqualified in order to make sure that the diversity quota looks is met and looks good, uh, you know, as we virtue signal to the rest of the world. I thought education was about learning, not about social justice. Who knew? Harvard vigorously defended our admissions process and our belief that we all benefit from learning, living, and working alongside people of different backgrounds and experiences. We all benefit from learning and living and working around different people with different experiences. How does the student who studied his or her tail off achieved a 4.4 GPA, filled with AP classes, advanced placement classes in their high school years, scoring 1450 on their SAT or scoring 3435 on their ACT, and being shut out of a spot on that campus because they had to let somebody in who had a 3.4 GPA instead of a 4.4, who had a, an 1100 instead of a 1350, or had a 23 instead of a 34 on their ACT. But because one of them has the right skin tone, they get in, and the one that had the wrong skin tone and the higher scores gets left out. How does that person get left out? Benefit from your policies. They're not allowed to be there at all. Have you thought about that? Have you explained that part yet, Claudine? Because to me, it doesn't sound like that person benefits at all. In fact, that person is getting shut out from an opportunity at an elite educa- uh, elite university with potentially a degree from that university that's going to set themselves up for success for the rest of their lives. Whereas the person that you want to put in there because of the correct skin color, because of the correct physical appearance, despite academic inferiority, they can't handle the rigors of Harvard classes, and they end up flunking out. Have you done them any favors? Who benefits there? Neither the student with the sparkling academic resume and a right to be in that class who doesn't get to go, that person doesn't benefit, nor does the person that you put in that university. Because they can't handle it. They can't qual- they're not qualified for it. Who have you helped? Nobody except you. So that you can proclaim your virtue to the masses. Look at us. Look at our campus. Look how diverse it is. Look how wonder- wonderfully diverse it is. You know, by this forced integration of, of people of different appearances and let's call it what it is here they're talking about well different backgrounds and diverse experiences my butt because nobody knows what your experiences are when they first see you nobody it's about what they look like you know it 
Do you know that there are impoverished white kids growing up in rural West Virginia that have had no benefits, no privileges of anything in their lives, and if they study and work their tails off to get to a university like Harvard, you're going to look at them and say, you must be privileged, white kid. You don't know his experience. You assume his experience because of what he looks like. And if you see a black kid who grew up in an upper middle class family, maybe even a higher than upper middle, upper middle class, maybe even in the wealthy class, with all kinds of opportunities, living in a crime-free neighborhood, that black student shows up at Harvard, you assume, you poor thing, you must have had a really miserable experience in this systemically racist country of ours. We want you on our campus. Wait a minute, what? You see, it's not about experiences. It's about appearance. What do they look like? If they look like the right shade, you're in. If you look like you we have too many of your shade already here, you're out. That's what Harvard is doing. We will comply with the court's decision, but it does not change our values. We continue to believe deeply that a thriving, diverse intellectual community is essential to academic excellence and critical to shaping the next generation of leaders. It is not. It is none of those things. And I will debate this academic all day long. Claudine Gay, incoming president at Harvard, I will debate with this with you all day long. She says it benefits everybody to not only learn but to live and work with people of diverse backgrounds. So here's what I want to know. Should they take people from a background of, let's say, inner city poverty, high crime, low uh, graduation rates at the schools, um, broken families, should they take those people and give them free homes or seriously, significantly reduce Section 8-style homes in the wealthiest communities where people like you live, Claudine Gay? Because everyone benefits from living in, a, in, in, a, in, a, in an environment, living and working and socializing with people of different ethnicities and social backgrounds. Is that what you want? Do you want them putting Section 8 housing next to your mansion, Claudine? After all... People benefit from living and working. You said so with people of different backgrounds and experiences. And the answer uh, to that, of course, would be, of course not. Every left-wing social justice warrior that you know, celebrities and athletes and academics, are all wealthy, right? Every one of these social justice warriors who's championing affirmative action so that they can put all of, all different you know uh, colors and, and ethnicities in these schools. Every single one of them that champions affirmative action lives where? In gated, predominantly white communities. That's where they live. And they don't want the rabble in the inner cities to come and live near them. So that their property becomes vandalized and their, pri- and their uh, uh, property values go down through the floor. Where does LeBron James live? Do you think LeBron James lives among the, the poor blacks that he champions all the time? I think LeBron James is building a mansion in Los Angeles? You know, he just tore down, I saw a headline, he tore down, or is tearing down, his $37 million mansion so that he could build his dream home. Did you catch that? 
He's got a $37 million mansion, and that's not his dream home. That's the starter home. And he's building his dream home. You think he's building it in South Central? You think he's building it in Compton? He's building it as far away from those people as he possibly can. Same thing with Barack Obama. You know where Barack Obama builds his homes? Hawaii on an island. Martha's Vineyard. Why doesn't he build it in downtown Chicago? Right in the middle of the diversity. What do you say, Barry? Why don't you put some walk behind that talk? All of these left-wing social justice warriors talking about how it's important and it's valuable for all of us to live and work and study and learn among people of different backgrounds. Why do you all flock to the same places? Gated communities where you're away from those diverse backgrounds because the overwhelming majority of them are white. Two one six nine zero one zero nine four five triple eight two eight one eleven ten. Let's get a couple of phone calls going here. Todd is in Ward One in Cleveland. Hey Todd, you're on the air. Fire away. Yo Bob. Yo Todd. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give an extra bit of contribution to your broadcast. I am a customer of Empire Windows. Took they took care of my grandparents' old house, fourteen windows about eight years ago. Mark was our guy. They came out and did the assessment and everything. They were on time. They were prepared, and they followed through. And when I go get these other three family, I mean, three, two-family houses, I'm going straight to them. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for that testimonial. They are good people, and they do exactly what they say. Thank you for that testimonial, brother. Uh, What else you got? So in the time remaining, I want to get into the decision of the students for fair admissions versus Harvard and North Carolina and what I think we should be, um, how we should conduct ourselves on the 4th of July as American citizens. Okay. So I'll do that one first. The 4th tomorrow is the celebration of um, a government that was established 200-plus years ago. I believe that in addition to picnics, parties, fireworks, as a good citizen, you should take some time and look at the 450-plus federal agencies on the federal registry and consider and develop a healthy appreciation for how well this taxpayer-funded government that we live in is is working for you and working for the public at large. We have an exceptionally good taxpayer-funded government, probably the best in the world. And if there, any, if there is one better, there's only maybe two, and that's it. And although we have our issues with our taxpayer-funded government, you should take some time out as a citizen to look at all the benefits that you gain as a result of being in this taxpayer-funded government that you may not be fully aware of as a result of government activity. And you'll develop a better appreciation for being an American citizen and let that be part of developing your better awareness of what it means to be an American citizen, not just the privilege of going to the public park, which is a government park, or traveling down the government streets, you know, I, I do. believe that. I, I do. I do too. I do too. I can get with everything you just said. So what I like, what what I liked, and I thought was very good writing on the part of Justice Roberts was toward in his in his majority decision. It might have been Gorsuch, but I think it was Roberts. I have to go back and look at who wrote it. We, which one? Point, are we, hold on. Which one are we talking about? Affirmative action. Um. Or students. Or, students for fair student, admissions versus Harvard and North okay, Carolina. Okay. Yeah, got, got it. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Go ahead. Or in, in his majority decision, it was either Roberts or Gorsuch. I don't remember which one wrote it. But they made a point of saying that if you, in your essay, 
and this is paraphrasing, describe how race has affected you, and that is part of the admission process to, for them to consider however it may have affected you, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, that that's reasonable. That's reasonable things for the schools to consider, okay? And I'm with that myself because whatever your grades are, whatever your SAT scores are, they aren't direct reflections of you as a whole. They're direct reflections of you as a um, student. And they're building they're building whole people, well-rounded people at these two schools. Okay, and let me let me let me jump in there because just in the interest of time, um, I don't disagree, but I don't wholly agree. And the only reason why is for every recognition of somebody's racial experience and the whole person that you're talking about that you say, you know what, this person really deserves this shot. There is a correspondence that David Harsanyi wrote. There's, there is a corresponding act of discrimination that's going to happen. If somebody is, whole person or otherwise, more academically qualified at an academic institution that loses that spot so that you can evaluate, quote, whole person over here who had a rougher go of it, you are still taking something of value away from them based on their race. You are discriminating based on their appearance because there are too many people who appear like them already on the campus. And that's the, the corresponding action that just, that's what's unconstitutional. It's not unconstitutional to evaluate race in helping somebody along. It's just that when that helping somebody along because of their race corresponds to stopping somebody else from something they've rightfully earned and an opportunity that's going to benefit them the rest of their lives, um, that's, that's where we get into the constitutionality of it. Well, as I as I mentioned, they're they're considering something more than somebody's performance on tests and classwork. And personally, the best essay that I ever saw in my lifetime that was written on how race affected them was by a middle class white kid who learned some experiences from middle class black kids and poor black kids and wrote that in an essay when they were in their freshman year at Ohio State. And I thought that was exceptional. But that person wasn't in a disadvantaged group, nor were they implying that they should get less privileges than somebody was in a disadvantaged group. They were just talking about how race affected them, which is what the decision, which is what um, Roberts or Gorsuch was writing. How did it affect you? They didn't say anything more than that in that decision. You know, they just said, how, if you have put together an essay on how race has affected you, that leaves a lot of room. And I like that. So I, have I, I, I do too, but but here's the thing, Todd, that I, that I'm still gonna I'm still gonna underscore here. You the, the words you just used, you know, uh, uh, an advantaged group or a or a privileged group or however it is that you just phrase that as a white middle class white person. Well, Go I ahead. was gonna say which cannot be cannot be considered based solely on somebody's skin color because there are many many white kids who are not. Uh, any more privileged than black kids. There are many white kids who grow up with no advantages, who grow up still eating healthy amounts of government cheese and didn't have any benefits, didn't go to any special schools, and, and, and had the same upward struggle of a black student. And if that kid, you know, has the same grades as a black student, that white kid, there's no way he's getting that spot. You know it and I know it, and that's discriminatory. Well, I don't know that. It depends. It depends on the Okay, school. let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. If that kid... 
um, is is perceived to be a part of a privileged group or or uh, an advantaged group or whatever simply because of his skin color. Nobody knows what his background is. Nobody knows what his experience is. On the basis of skin color alone and the desire for equity and diversity on that campus, they're going to give that spot to the black kid. And that's that's the very nature of discrimination based solely on the appearance of somebody and their their uh, perceived uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for in a in a in a in a in a in a group their perceived representation in a particular group either marginalized or privileged and and that's that's an assumption that simply cannot be made and it should not be made or used in an in an admissions decision. I think you're reaching. I think you're reaching, Bob. But. Well, that, but, 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 but you, you know what? You, but, but Todd, you know as well as I do what the definition of prejudice is. Prejudice t- is taken from the words prejudge. You prejudge right. someone based on their participation or their representation in a particular group. You prejudge somebody who is black to be this way. You prejudge somebody who is Hispanic to be this way, Asian, and so on and so forth. And and that is what the court is basically saying. You cannot do that anymore. You cannot prejudge people based on you know, hey, he's got darker skin. He must have had a hell of a harder life. Therefore, you get some extra points here. You get that nudge up over somebody. He's got lighter skin. He probably had an easier life. Therefore, that's what the court is disallowing here. And and, and I think that's exactly what they should be doing. I still think you're reaching, but uh, uh, not on the definition of prejudice. Not on the definition of prejudice, I don't think you're reaching. But, you know, that goes both ways. You know, white kid, middle class or upper class, prep school, that person must be a better fit for this school because, because of his or her background. That's... That's prejudging too. Yeah. Well, it, but but you know what? That's not allowed. <laughs> if they if they prejudge somebody who is white to think they're going to be better for us, and they pick them on the basis of that, that is also racial preference, which means it is by definition correspondingly to the other people, racially discriminatory. And neither one of those should you. be allowed. I'm gonna call you at the end of the week because I, I definitely want to talk with you about the 303 graphic design case. We I'm can do it. Try to catch you on Friday. We can All do right, it, brother. Man. Thanks, yep. man. Always appreciate your calls. Really, really good stuff. We'll come right back after this. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by KeepingMedicareSimple.com and The Floor King. So James Comer, the chairman of the Oversight Committee, updated the totals. He had said two weeks ago that Hunter Biden, uh, according to bank records, made $8.3 million in direct payments through the uh, shell companies from China, but that the Biden family between China and Romania and Ukraine has collected over $20 million, like father, like son. child called me up just the other day he said dad i need some crack can you help me today and i had lots of cash but bills to pay he said don't worry dad i'll find another way he was smoking for i knew it and away he flew saying i'm gonna be like you dad you know i'm gonna be like you and hunters in the basement with a silver spoon the hookers and drugs were gonna be there soon when you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when I'll be good and high by then, Dad Yeah, I'll be good and high by then Picking through rugs 
um, smoking anything that re even remotely resembled crack cocaine. I'm very proud of my son. My son came around just the other day. He said, I got me a deal where we can both get paid. Can I trade on your name? I said, sure, okay. Will anyone know? He said, no, no way. And as he walked away, he looked kind of dim and said, I'm going to be like him, yeah. You know I'm gonna be like him. He's, he's fixed it. He's worked on it. And Hunter's in the basement with a silver spoon. Ukrainian bribes were gonna be there soon. When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when. I'll put aside your 10%, Dad. I'll always have your 10%. I said, honey, what are you doing? I said, Dad, I'm fine. He said, you're not fine. I know how to game the system. Come on. Come on, well, he came from Kiev just the other day Had a smile so big I just had to say Son, I'm proud of you, how's our cash supply? He nodded his head and said Great big guy, but what I really need, Dad, is to borrow the car keys You can take the vet, but watch the boxes, please And Hunter's in the basement with a silver spoon Classified papers all over the room When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when I'm getting good and high again, Dad. I'm getting good and high again. He pointed out the reason why he regrets it is he didn't anticipate that, that folks like Giuliani would use it to, in fact, try to embarrass his father. Yes, they are. They're flat bugs. Come on. This guy is a dog whistle about as big as a foghorn. I stole an election and my son moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, you owe some cash, I want my cut today. He said, calm down, Dad, you know it's on the way. But my laptop is gone and now it's on you. And now we're both really screwed, Dad. And now we're both gonna be screwed. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he was damn near dumber than me. My boy was dumb as me. And there was Hunter in the basement with a silver spoon All of our crimes were coming out real soon When's it all in, son? I don't know when But we're gonna end up in the pen, Dad We're both gonna be in the pen I am absolutely certain, 100% certain That at the end of the investigation That I will be cleared of any wrongdoing God save the Queen, man It's uh, 11.39. Let's go to Joanna Twinsburg. Joanne, you're on AM 1420, The Answer. Good morning. Fire away. Morning, Bob. Now I have two things to say. Todd, American tax dollars are to provide for infrastructure, a judicial system that is fair, a military to protect us. Not all the other stuff my tax dollars are going to. I'm sick of that. <laughs> don't tell well, me how well, I well, you know, but I, but you know, I don't, I don't know that I heard him say all of those other things. You know, well, to right, fund but the I'm saying he's saying, oh, yeah. you know, you're getting all these things. Well, you know what? I'm getting a lot of things that I don't want to pay for. Okay, too. well, that that part is true, <laughs> but the things that he said, I agreed with because you know what? Sure. I'm fine with paying, uh, you know, for my country to provide the roads that I drive on, to sure. to provide the police force that protects me, right. to provide Absolutely. the prisons. Absolutely, that's that what I'm saying. Us. Those things yeah. are okay, but what about all the other stuff? 
You know, but, I mean, the but, things but that you know, he mentioned specifically, I don't disagree with. I agree okay. with you, Bob. Good. You know, because I think saying. what's important to hear, and, and maybe what he was referring to, Joanne, is there are a lot of people who continue to, to use the. Uh, uh, the mantra that uh, taxation is theft, that taxation against against my will, taking my money from well, me that I've earned and is. so forth. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, right. But generally speaking, I'm okay with a tax-funded uh, system of government, provided they use those taxes only for the things that they need, minimal government, Absolutely. minimal government, and then just get out of the way and let the rest of us do our thing. As Absolutely. long as that's what the taxes are for. That's not theft. That's part of our, you know, it's part of how we survive and thrive. So that's important. But wait, yeah. And the other thing I wanted to mention, you were talking about this woman from Harvard talking about, you know, it's good for them to, you know, be together and go to school together and learn to work together. Then why do they have their own graduations? Why do they have their own dorms? They don't want to integrate either. I that mean, is so very on. true. That is so very true. Not enough people are bringing that point up. A couple of people did last week when we talked about it. But it's true. They self-segregate in their own dorms, their own graduations, and so on and so forth. Not right. all of and them, obviously, talk about it but living, a lot of people. You know, amongst each other. Right, I mean, it's, exactly. It's beyond me, Bob. Completely agree. Completely <laughs> Have a good agree. holiday. Thank you, Joanne. Same to you. Uh, Sally's in Berea next. Hi, Sally. You're on the air. Fire away. Hi, Bob. I was happy to hear that someone from Congress had proposed that July be America Pride Month. And I want to thank you for having a segment tomorrow on patriotism because we all, even though it's preaching to the choir for, for the most part, but we all need to be inspired to find every conservative that we can to go out and cast their vote, or early even, for August 8th, and also to defeat, defeat all the garbage in the November election, too. And I... I thank you for all the information that you give us, and I want to wish you and your expert staff a wonderful, safe, and blessed Fourth of July. Well, Thanks, thank Bob. you for that, and to you as well, Sally. Thank you, and thank you for the call and for your uh, loyal listening. She's talking about Wesley Hunt, representative of uh, from Texas, <clears throat> who's an African American. It shouldn't matter, but apparently everything does now. He's an African-American who loves his country, who's proud of his country, and who is sick and tired of the crap we were forced to endure in the month of June. And he has said, here's our response. July must be known as American Pride Month. American Pride Month, as opposed to just Pride Month. He is actually introducing a resolution, a constitutional resolution, to declare month the month of July as uh, American Pride Month. Um, it would be dedicated to celebrate, memorialize, and increase awareness of the monumental achievements of the United States of America and the countless number of patriots throughout her history which have made this nation the last best hope of Earth. If the Biden White House, woke corporations, and the media can spend an entire month celebrating pride, then they can also spend the entire month of our nation's birth celebrating American pride. I love that. I love that, and, um, and I hope there is uh, support for that in Congress. And I hope we make the Democrats say no to it, proving what we already know, that they have no pride in this country. Tomorrow is the birth, or the celebration thereof, 247 years young, of this greatest nation in human civilization. We will not be live tomorrow. We will have a best of show for you tomorrow. But we will include a few patriotic tributes as uh, Sally just referenced. So I hope you'll tune in tomorrow morning as you get your holiday started. Thanks, everybody, for being here today. Thanks to the guests. Thanks to my team. And thanks to you for listening. Be well. Be safe. Stay free. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.
Bye-bye. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.